Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, believer, walk, Hello, all, and welcome to another episode of Finnerin's Wake, a podcast on which all ideas, all opinions are welcome, so long as they accord with my own. Now, this week I did another installment of my famous series of book reviews, a a phenomenon of which the entire country is speaking. With tens of downloads, I feel as though I've taken the podcasting world by storm. Now, this week I reviewed The Truth and Beauty by the renowned satirist, author, and podcaster Andrew Claven, of whose weekly program I'll admit I am quite fond. Now, with that unscripted introduction, I'll delve into my formal review of The Truth and Beauty by Andrew Claven. Upon his arrival at the Hotel de Ville de Londres, a former monastery from which every lingering trace of piety had long since fled, and yet over which, as though it were the earthly haunt of some curious spirit, the snow-capped peak of that divine mountain, Mont Blanc, hovered in ageless, icy silence. Percy Bysshe Shelley was encouraged to sign his name and declare his vocation in a guest book. Incapable of denying controversy its chance, he did so in the following way. For his name, he naturally signed that unique combination of Percy Bysshe, by whose strange musicality I've always been enchanted. What a remarkable, and in so many ways, beautiful middle name of which to boast with which my own Ethan hardly competes. It was the inheritance from a grandfather who split his time between America and England, and between multiple wives. What an impression this must have left on our polyamorous young Shelley, to whom the scandalous doctrine of free love seems less to have been a philosophical conviction, one at which he arrived after much sober thinking through the course of many years, then it was a sheer genetic compulsion. <laughs> Can it not now be deemed conclusive that infidelity is, to the shock of all moralists, a heritable trait? As for his vocation, Shelley, overtaken by the impishness that so often got him in trouble, wrote the following. Philanthropist, Democrat, and Atheist. Upon the first two, a lover of humanity and an advocate for the masses, polite European society could look, if not approvingly, then at least with an eye of wary acceptance. The year was 1816, and the recent events of the Napoleonic Wars had led many to question the wisdom of popular tyrannies, into which the bloody regime of Robespierre had turned, and of an all-conquering monarchy at whose royal head Napoleon Bonaparte had stood, and from whose lofty perch he was now set to fall. Of the last term, though, far fewer people would be so tolerant, especially after having witnessed the murderous consequences of France's godless cult of reason, upon whose blood-stained altar many provincial priests, conservative clergymen, and guiltless clerics were summarily killed. Yet, Shelley, being Shelley, was undeterred. 
He would be an atheist, or he would be no one. Now, perhaps I'm wrong to do so, but when the idea of the romantic poets is raised, Shelley is the first person with whom I associate that unrivaled school of British writers. I know not why this is. The reflex is probably explained by the fact that Shelley's great poem, Osmondias, was one of the earliest compositions of which my young mind, still in the fruitful development in its teenage years, refused to let go, for the accommodation of whose vibrant, arresting, and wistful verse my boyish memory carved a permanent place. I memorized it, gosh, maybe at the age of fifteen, and continue, as many years later, to delight in its recitation. I met a traveler from an antique land. It's beautiful, if you've not yet read it, and very easy for the memory. It was with this bias I approached Andrew Claven's latest work, The Truth and Beauty. As a devoted fan of Claven's weekly podcast, The Andrew Claven Show, from whose depth of feeling, penetrating analysis, quickness of wit, and facility of satire, much enjoyment is to be derived. I can say that, so far as the listener is able, I have a fair measure of the man. I know him, an apostate Jew, to be a deeply religious Christian, and a very keen student of his adopted faith. I know that he holds the martyred Messiah of the Second Testament, Jesus Christ, highly deserving of worship and esteem. And so, when I learned of Claven's latest work, whose thesis teased a marriage between the poetry of the Romantics and the precepts of Jesus, I was at once struck by what I feared to be the sounding of two unharmonious bells that clamored by Shelley, the brash, impenitent atheist, and that sung by Christ, the incarnate God and Redeemer of man. Shelley, after all, is probably still suffering the assaults of hellish brimstone for the profanities he expressed during his short tenure here on earth, while Christ, well, depending on your belief, exists everywhere for all time, both in, above, and everywhere around us. And yet, Claven combines these two genres, scripture and poetry, seamlessly. Shelley is, to some extent, de-emphasized in the work, as is his equally sacrilegious countryman, George Gordon, Lord Byron. In fact, the Shelley on whom Claven spends the most time is the promiscuous poet's second wife, Mary Godwin Shelley, daughter of the renowned feminist Mary Wollstonecraft and the radical utopian socialist William Godwin. Claven guides us on an exegesis of Mary Shelley's immortal work, Frankenstein, from which much is to be gained. First, he paints the background of the scene out of which Mary Shelley's work emerged. He tells of the great challenge, issued by Lord Byron to the rest of the assembled gang, to craft a tale of what we might now categorize as science fiction or horror. The sprightly genius of Byron and Shelley, which had the ability to leap up to the stage unbidden, was quick to the task. Each began his work immediately, but his efforts weren't long sustained. 
the incipient idea born of Byron's mind, though, did become the basis for his friend and doctor, John Polidori's novella, The Vampire. It seems, for the Twilight series, we have a second-hand romantic to thank. Mary Shelley's creative impulse was, when compared to that of her lover and Byron, costive. It took her many days to come up with an idea equal to the challenge. A challenge, mind you from which two of the greatest writers in the English language unceremoniously bowed out. At long last, she was visited by her muse and was able to craft one of the finest monster and morality tales in the Western canon, Frankenstein. Clavin explores this book in an ingenious way, marking the tension between the, quote, wifeless creator, Dr. Frankenstein, and the motherless creature. What is the essential, unifying influence of which both creator and creature are deprived? The feminine. Femininity. That without which humanity can't exist. The latter is, in every way, dependent on the former. This, I think, is where Clavin is at his strongest. He takes a topic on which few others are bold enough to comment, much less dilate at some length. His conception of the feminine now greatly informs my own thinking. Quote, the experience of his mother's love allows the new soul to become a self. All nature around him becomes infused and alive with his mother's love, so that he feels connected to the world and sympathizes with its afflictions and pains. Again, another quote. Through mother love, humans learn to become agents of the one great mind. That is the mind of God. And again, another quote. The unique power of the feminine, then, is not just to confer life on matter, but to infuse life with creative humanity. Even God, when he wanted to become human, chose for himself a mother. Had I words nearly as eloquent, a mind as quick, and a soul as profound, I would echo Clavin's beautiful encomium for the ladies and the mothers. But I don't, so I leave it to him to sing of their inestimable import. He speaks to the centrality of Mary's role in the biblical narrative, around which so very much revolves. Unpersuaded by the adopted Mariolatry of the Catholic faith, his unique perspective of Jesus' mother is altogether different, and, I think, more sublime than that offered by Rome. In giving birth to Jesus, he says, Mary is not just femininity incarnate. She is also humanity incarnate. Humanity in its relationship with God. He then speaks of the memorable exchange between Jesus and Mary at Cana, that little dry city at which the eponymous wedding was hosted. In reflecting on my relationship to my own mother, herself a saint on earth, by whose endless generosity, self-sacrifice, and unconditional love, 
I stand utterly amazed. The following passage brought me to tears. Quote, I see this as the moment when mother and son came to understand and accept one another. In asking him for a miracle, Mary accepted who Jesus was as a man, the unbelievable truth about him that had haunted her since the Annunciation. And Jesus accepted that. Well, even when you're a man, your mother is still your mother. She asked for a miracle with an authority over him she could no longer have. He rebuked her. She showed that, all the same. She expected him to do what she asked, if not on command, then in filial love. He did what she asked. End quote. Ah, <laughs> even when you're a man, your mother is still your mother. My eyes well up when I read this. In short, this section on the eternal feminine is the book's most powerful. In earlier chapters, Clavin focuses not, as I initially feared, on the atheist Shelley, but on the pious Wordsworth and the numinous Coleridge. His assessment of these two great poets is wonderful, especially for someone like me, who now holds Coleridge, rather than Shelley, in highest esteem. Shelley, a rebellious materialist, is suitable for one's godless adolescence. Thereafter, while one appreciates his genius, his puerilities and impieties are outgrown. Coleridge, on the other hand, persists. A spiritual Platonist, a poetic prophet, he's reserved for one's maturer, wiser years. Clavin's eulogy of Keats is apt. I'll admit, I was surprised by the infrequency with which the name William Blake was uttered. Perhaps this is owing to the poet's inscrutability. That said, a work linking the Gospels and the Romantics, I thought, might emphasize Blake a bit more. In closing, the work is... Uh, cleverly conceived and flawlessly executed. I think it very, very deserving of your time. Perhaps even deserving of its addition to your bookshelf. And with that, my friends, we've come to our conclusion of this week's book review. Now, if there are any other works of which you would like me to do a review, on which you'd like me to opine. Please send me a message at my email address, which is finnerinswake at gmail.com, or send me a message on any of my social media pages, uh, on which I promise to be a more frequent visitor. Uh, now, with that, <laughs> until next time, I bid you farewell from Finnerin's Wake. Shout, Daniel. Shout, believer, shout, Daniel. Shout, believer, shout, Daniel.